0: Get our Bibles out this morning, John chapter 2. If you were here last week, you know we started this miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. So many great applications of truth in here we're going to unpack Verses five to the end of the miracle, as you get there in John chapter two, I'm going to thank God for the word for just a minute, and then we're going to read uh, all 11 verses. Father, we thank you this morning that you love us and that you've given us this treasure called the word of God. Father, I pray that we would avail ourselves of this gift you have given us, that we would be in the word constantly and the word would get in us. That it would change us from the inside out, that you would show us the applications of your principles and your truth, the blueprints for living and all of these things. Father, as we enjoy this miracle that Jesus did, uh, turning water into wine and all the fruit that it produced in the lives of those who were there that day and in our lives. Father, we thank you for the miracles that still accompany those who believe and accompany your church. So Lord, let us see miracles in our own lives, in our own daily living in our own households, in our own marriages, in our own relationships. and Help us, Father, to get every drop of what you've put in here for us. I prayed in Jesus' name and the church said, amen. amen. Jesus turning water into wine. It says here in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does it have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw out some now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had been made wine, they did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves good wine first. And then when people have drunk freely, then they serve the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So, so many powerful things in there that we could just skim through. We've heard these miracles. We've listened to them and, you know, we we get the gist of what's going on, but there's so many deep treasures tucked in here. Now, Jesus steps up to do this miracle. Remember his Mom kind of drops it in his lap. And his answer to her is, what does this have to do with me? You know, my time has not come yet. Yet he steps up and does this miracle in an obscure place. Remember, we said it was a a typical day for a wedding. The third day in the Jewish mentality, that was Tuesday. Weddings were where it was at. Jesus is in an ordinary place, Gain of Galilee. And he kind of does this miracle here. And it's a little bit in obscurity. You know, if he would have did this in Jerusalem, it would have exploded and been everywhere. But Jesus knew the timing of the Father, and he didn't desire crowds, and he knew what came along with the signs and wonders. But He steps up to do this miracle here, and we're going to see at the end of it what the purpose for this miracle was. As verse 5 contains the last words of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the Bible. Mary appears in other places in the Bible, at the crucifixion and all of these places, but she never says anything that's recorded in the text. And the last thing that Mary says is his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And we're going to get into that instruction in a little bit because it's a good thing. But we need to look at this situation here with Mary, the mother of Jesus, the fact that, you know, she prompted him to do this miracle and he had a little dialogue with her about the fact that, you know, he does the father's will and nobody else's. Amen. You know, we can't do uh, our mother's will, our father's will, our boss's will, our spouse's will. We've got to do the will of God. Come on, wake up now, second service. Amen. I'm going to preach and you're going to talk back and that's the way it's going to go. Okay. So, you know, we can't do anybody's will. If we do anybody's will but the father's will, it's going to make a mess. Jesus is about making miracles and making, you know, uh, the, the, the kingdom of heaven come to earth. So he's like, Mom, you know, my, my time has not come yet, but here I am I'm stepping up. Now, many religious systems cross the line when it comes how they relate to Mary, the mother of Jesus. A lot of us have come out of religious systems like that, and we've heard so-called theology about who Mary is, and I want to I talk about that a little bit today. Many of us have come out of those backgrounds. I'm not desiring to step on anybody's toes today, but here we go. So some religious systems call Mary the mother of God. Now, listen to me. God has no mother. Uh, Just Pastor Mike. Pastor Mike, don't say anything. God has no mother. Some of you are still slacking. So. Listen, God has always been, he wasn't created, he wasn't born of a woman, he has no mother. Now I get what they're saying, you know, Jesus came through her, but you know, it almost implies here a supremacy to God, and we see some of that. We see a big statue of Mary, little Jesus. And listen to me. God has no mother. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are pre-existent. The, the Son was begotten, not made. Only we are born of a woman. Now, there's something happens when you have a mother and you're born of a woman. You're born with original sin. Come on. So if Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't, you know, he came through so he would have that sin nature so he could live perfectly and he could crucify it and set us free. But listen, our heavenly father has no mother. He has no sin. He's preexistent. He's eternal. He always was and he always will be. All right. So there is no one above God. There is no throne above God. There's no one who God answers to. So in how you apply this and what you think about it, uh, this stuff comes out of Babylonian paganism. It's not biblical, and we're going to uncover some of that in a minute. We're mortals. We're born of a woman, and we're born with original sin. Jesus took that sin, but the Father never did. Amen. Uh, isn't it wonderful to be born in original sin? Isn't that, oh, happy day, you know? It's like you're born and you got this. What is it? From the flesh, amen? Now, you can't be too mad about it because as soon as we get old enough to confirm our sin nature, we actually sin ourselves, right? Even little kids, I don't know how old you were when you sinned, but at some point I figured out how to talk and then I figured out how to lie. And then my mom said, do you do this? No. Do you take that? No. Sin, you confirm the sin nature with actually sinning but that's not our heavenly Father. He knows no sin. He was not made. He was not born of a woman. Now, there's also a movement in the Catholic Church for some time now to make Mary the co-redeemer with Jesus. Some of you have probably heard of this stuff. Uh, There is no co-redeemer with Jesus. Jesus is the redeemer, amen? There's no Jesus Jr. There's no Jesus, you know, Jesus light, diet Jesus. Jesus in training. No, no man can redeem man. No one born of a woman can. Why? Because we have sin nature. Look, you could nail me to the cross all you want. It's not going to do any good. There's no redemption in man. There's no co-redeemer. Jesus alone is the redeemer. There's one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ, the righteous. So that movement's going nowhere. God will never bless that. Mary has also been called the queen of heaven. Now, I just want to clear this up. God, God has no queen. He's the king. Hello, come on, you Catholics, just repent out there. Come on, he's the king, but he has no queen. There's no queen sitting on a throne in heaven. Yet there's a movement to make this. You say, where does this all come from? It comes from Babylonian paganism where Tamis and uh, they had the mother-child cult there and they copied this stuff. Constantine blended it into Christianity. Like, look, there's none of this in the Bible. There's none of this in the Bible. We're going to talk about what the Bible says. So there's a lot of confusion about Mary. People say that, well, well she wasn't born with the original sin. Absolutely wrong. Well, she didn't die. She was uh, assumed into heaven. The immaculate conception, the assumption, all of these things, you know what they all have in common? Not biblical. So understand something today. People have not treated Mary correctly. They've esteemed her with things that, and, and it must break her heart because what a godly woman. We're going to see what the Bible says about her in just a minute, and it's, you know, it's, it's very complimentary. It's a, it's a huge blessing. We don't, uh, we don't insult her or put her down. We just don't worship her, and we don't lift her up to a status that the Bible doesn't give her. Amen. If you do, it's blasphemy. Look, you don't bow down to statues. You don't pray to dead people. That's idolatry. It's a violation of the second commandment. Amen. I'm not picking on anybody this morning. I just want to be biblical. So, you know, what do we believe about her? The angel Gabriel said in Luke 1 about Mary, he said she's highly favored. That sounds good, doesn't it? Amen. So if you say Mary's highly favored, amen, that's scriptural. When an angel shows up and says you're highly favored that God sent, that means you're, you're a little bit of a big deal. You know, it's better than if an angel shows up and goes, you're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and how many had that angel show up? The angel Gabriel, God's messenger, an archangel shows up and says, you're highly favored. Woo. We know what happened from there and she, she hears the plan of God and so humbly she responds to it. In Luke 1:38, Mary calls herself the handmaiden of the Lord. See how beautifully humble she was? Just a young girl, just, you know, overwhelmed at all of what's about to happen yet. She says, "I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. I'm a servant." That was her heart. Not, I'm the queen of heaven or, you know, I'm the mother of God. No, I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. See, a big difference in the way Mary portrayed herself than the way others try to portray her. In Luke 1.42, Mary's cousin Elizabeth, she's pregnant with John the Baptist. Mary comes to the room, here come the two baby bellies, and what happens? John the Baptist jumps in Elizabeth's womb. He's like, "Woo! he got the Holy Ghost. She made, Jesus made Elizabeth's baby jump in there, and, you know, what was that? Uh, now, now they're having this Holy Ghost moment here, and Elizabeth, you know, she says to Mary, you are blessed among women. That's biblical, amen? She's a blessing. Why? She's going to carry the Christ child in her womb, the Savior of the world. Woo, come on. Yeah, she's a special lady. She's highly favored. She's the handmaiden of the Lord. She's blessed among women. I want, I want you to hear in Luke 146-48 how Mary describes herself as she uh, just bursts out in the Holy Spirit uh, overwhelmed by all of what's going on. And Mary says, listen, my soul does magnify the Lord, Luke 146. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Not, hey, I'm gonna be co-redeemer. No, Jesus is gonna be my Savior too. He's gonna come through my womb and he's gonna save the world. Come on, get this here. For he has regarded the lowest of his handmaiden, not a queen, not the mother of heaven. No, she's just a handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed. So if we're going to be biblical today, and we better be because good theology produces good results and bad theology produces deception. You know, what Mary called herself, what Elizabeth said, what the angel said about her, This is all the view that we should have. She's highly favored. She's the handmaiden of the Lord. She's blessed among women. She's not the mother of God. She's not the queen of heaven. She's not the co-redeemer with Christ. I find it so fitting and so humble that Mary's last words in Scripture prompt us not to worship her, not to pray to her, not to esteem her, but to give our complete trust and obedience to Jesus Mary's words are this, whatever he says, you do it. That's pretty good counsel right there. That'll last throughout the ages. Whatever he says, you do it. You know, this is the perfect approach for us in every situation. And, you, you know, it, ha- it comes down to who do we serve today? Are we obedient to Jesus or do we follow another voice? And I ask first services, and I want to ask you this. Who do you work for today? Pastor Mike knows he was there cheated. Open book test, Pastor Mike. Yeah, we work for Jesus today. Hello, second service. Amen. Oh, no, Pastor, I work for my boss. I work for such and such a company. No, I'm married. I work for my wife. I got a honey-do list to do. You got to see it. It's big. The nervous laughter from the men. No, you don't work for your spouse. You don't work for your boss. You don't even work for yourself. You and I serve the purpose of God on the earth. We work for Jesus. Amen. Now, all you guys looking at me and not saying amen, who do you work for? If you work for yourself, if you're doing your own thing, if you want to mix in a little Jesus with your own agenda, you're going to have a really hard go at life. We've got to decide who we serve, and we've got to serve him with all our hearts. Amen? So John Kenneth Galbraith wrote an autobiography, The Life and Times of John Kenneth Galbraith. He, he was a person in uh, government and high positions of leadership, he illustrates the devotion of Emily Wilson, the family's housekeeper. And there's a lesson in here for us. Now, Galbraith uh, had a long, hard day, and he came home, and he asked Emily Wilson to hold all of his calls while he took a much-needed nap. Anybody, anybody feeling the nap these days? Amen. Amen. Some of us are too tired to raise our hand, but we need a nap. So he takes his nap. Shortly after he'd fallen asleep, the phone rang, and it was President Lyndon Baines Johnson calling from the White House. Oh, my goodness, you know, the White House is calling. The president is calling. Get me Kenneth Calbraith. This is Lyndon Johnson. He's sleeping, Mr. President, and he asked not to be disturbed. Well, wake him up. I want to talk to him. No, Mr. President, I work for him. I don't work for you. This lady's, I like this lady. Amen. Anybody get somebody on the phone like that? Later, when the president called back, he could scarcely control his delight over the steadfastness of their housekeeper. He said, you tell that woman, I want her to work for me in the White House. And so we've got to ask the question, who do we work for? Are we loyal to Jesus? Do we serve his purposes? Are we willing to say no to everybody and everything else because God says so? Amen. Come on, first service, second service, whatever service. I don't know if it's Wednesday. Well, you know, I had a lot of pressure from my boss. Well, I had a lot of pressure from my family. I had a lot of, listen, we need to say no to all the things that are not God. We need to just please him. Well, get him up. No, I'm not getting him up. He he signs my check. You know, I don't work for you. You tell the president off, that's a good lady right there. (laughs) Sign her up right there. But we have to be that steadfast with our commitment to Christ that we're willing to put anybody in their place if they want us to violate what God has called us to do. Oh, it's much cooler down here. I think I might stay down here trying to melt me with those lights. So who do you work for today? I work for Jesus. You work for Jesus. We serve at his pleasure. So let's please him in the way we live, in the way we serve. Uh. There's so many powerful examples in there of what, you know, we're to do as servants. We're going to unpack a little bit of that. But let's just notice, first of all, as Mary is in this limelight here, she's kind of trying to work behind the scenes to address this issue. Notice who she goes to uh, when she wants a miracle to happen. She goes to the servants and she says whatever he says you do. And the point is that she doesn't go to the dignitaries. Sure there was dignitaries there. There were, you know, the muckety-mucks, the ones who were elected or the ones who had titles. Come on. Yeah. She doesn't go to them in this situation. No, she doesn't even go to the head waiter. That that the guys in charge of the feast. Yet Mary doesn't go to the head waiter and and say, you know, we have no wine or, you know. No, she doesn't go to the bride. She doesn't go to the groom. She goes to the servants. There's a lesson in here. Now, you think, well, I want to be one of the higher-ups. I want the chief seat. I want to, you know, I want to be in charge. I want to be the... the pr- no, listen, all those people kind of missed out on the behind-the-scenes of seeing a miracle here. The only ones that saw the miracle were the servants. And, you know, usually the last thing any wants, anybody wants to be is a servant. Oh, I want to be in charge. I want to be the boss. I want to be... No, listen, it's all about service in the kingdom of God. Even the highest leaders in leadership in the kingdom of God are servant leaders. Look how Jesus came. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. That's what he said about himself. He came, you know, not to be worshiped and honored, although all of that was due him. He came to die on a cross for sins he never committed for our good. So when it comes to anything in the kingdom of God, it's about service. It's about servant leadership. You want to hear God speak? be a servant. You want to see God reveal himself to you? Be a servant. You want to see miracles happen all around you? Be a servant. Amen? The only only ones who saw the miracle were the servants. Some of you say, I'm still not serving. You know, and then what do we do? We miss out on hearing God, and we miss out on seeing God move. We miss out on the miracles because it's only through service. So Mary goes to the servants. Now, In verse 6 is where it gets interesting. There are a lot of implications here. It says, now there were six stone water pots that were set for the Jewish custom of purification, 20 or 30 gallons of each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, so they fill them to the brim. Okay, so let's take a look at those water pots there. You know, here you are, you're at a wedding. Uh, you run out of wine, so you know it's all gone, and there just happens to be six empty water pots sitting around. What a coincidence! Yeah. Isn't it amazing how many coincidences Jesus walks into all the time? You know, you're just looking at me. No, it's not a coincidence. It's a God incidence, amen? When you and I do the will of God, things fall into place all around us. Look, if you're struggling, if nothing's going right for you, if you're, you're getting doors slammed everywhere you go, you, you're, you know, I'm not saying it goes easy when you do the will of God, but God makes a way for things to happen, amen? God brings the right people and the right opportunities. God provides finances, Amen. We used to always laugh about on Christian TV, you'd have people crying on TV, if you don't give, you know, we're going to have to go off the air. Go off the air, please. God finances the things that are his idea. We, We never have to beg for finances. We never have to beg for these things. God provides. So there's just by coincidence six water pots empty sitting around. Now let's talk about these Six water pots. You would just read, okay, six water pots. Keep going. There are some powerful implications here. The significance of those stone purification pots was this: they were used uh, to ritually cleanse people. Now, the Mosaic Law covenant prescribed that if people wanted to be free from sin, they had to, you know, bring an offering or go through purification. Or there was rituals that if you sinned and you wanted to be forgiven, you had to go through this. Now, there were certain things that you did that made you unclean. It, you know, it could have been a sexual sin. It could have been touching a dead body. It could have been a lot of things. But you would have to be stripped and washed by the priest and cleaned, and it was a big to-do. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, back in the day, sin was inconvenient. It was a lot of trouble. You know, back in the day, if you sinned, you had to bring a certain animal, a dove, maybe you need to bring a lamb. You know, if you did something really bad, you need to make a, a, you know, a blood offering. For You need to bring a couple bulls or an ox, you know. And everybody would see what you were bringing to the temple. Oh, here comes Leonardo again, two bulls. Look at him. He's, come on, come on. What did he do now? Man, thank God for grace, right? It's between us and God. We confess our sins, amen? Not. I know the Bible says to confess to one another, but think about it. If you had to get purified, they would know it's a big deal. So they got you know, to use these pots and all this purification to satisfy the law. Here, here's what happens. Jesus is about to fill those vessels that are used to satisfy the legal requirements of the law. He's about to fill them with wine. That's significance as well, because in Scripture, the wine symbolizes some things in Scripture. Now, I'm not advocating drinking wine. We know the Bible says, be not drunk with wine. So there's moderation. The Bible says, thou shalt not, it doesn't say thou shall not drink wine. But I, I'm not talking about drinking wine here, okay? What I'm talking about is what the wine represents. It, re- it represents blessing and prosperity. If you study the symbolism through Scripture, that it was, you know, God prospered his people and he blessed his people, and then wine symbolized joy. We're going to have the new wine at the marriage feast of the Lamb. We're going to sit down and we're going to celebrate with Jesus what he has done. Come on, it's okay to get excited about going to heaven, amen? And and wine represents that blessing and the prosperity and the joy of the Lord. What does that come from? It comes from the grace of God. So what I want you to see here is here's this vessel, this stone pot that represents the satisfying of the law. Jesus is about to fill it with wine, so now grace is going to come out of those pots. What is a symbol of here is the fact that the old law covenant is being eclipsed by the grace covenant, and God is about to pour out blessing and prosperity and joy upon his people through Jesus Christ. (laughs) Woo! Man, if you don't like that, just get out. Because I mean that's exciting, amen. See, Jesus, everything Jesus did meant something. He's like, no more law. No, what we used to use to satisfy the requirements of the law. Now it's about grace. You're going to be blessed. You're going to prosper. You're going to have the joy of the Lord in your life, and it's all because of what I'm going to do on the cross for you. So let's do a little wine math today. Are you ready? So these containers here held between t- 20 and 30 gallons. Uh, of water. So when he made the uh, water into wine, Jesus made between 100 and 150 bottles of wine because there's five uh, bottles of wine per gallon. So now on average, wine in the USA, a decent bottle is $16, but will be considered good wine. Remember, this was the good stuff because God pours out the good stuff would be $32 a bottle. So Jesus made between $3,200 and $4,800 of wine for the feast. Now you say, what's the significance of that? Understand this, Jesus shows up. Now we said, you know, it was Jesus plus 12, but probably at that time he might have just had five disciples. Anyway, five mouths to feed and Jesus. Jesus more than covers his, his cost at the feast, but he leaves a great blessing for the couple. Amen. This is what I want you to see today. Hey, anybody get married and get $4,800 gift from somebody? Raise your hand. Don't don't lie in church. No, no. People don't give gifts like that. In fact, usually when you go to a wedding, you know, and, and w- what you pay for the person to be there is not even covered in, in the gift that they give. That's, that's wedding math. This is wine math. So <laughs> Jesus is showing what here? That he's not a taker, he's a giver, he's a blesser. Amen. What is he giving them? Blessing and prosperity. He's giving them a wedding present. Not only are they missing out on being embarrassed about running out, but now they're they're left with a, a, a gift in their life. I want you to see that's how God treats us. You know, people who try to make God out to be an old, angry codger, and he's. He's cheap and he just gives you enough to get by and he doesn't want you to be too happy, you know. Well don't get no. God is a blessing God, amen. He's a good God, amen. He's a God of abundance. And that's what he does here. Maybe we're uncomfortable with the wine. Hey, look, I'm in sales. He's in charge. I'm just telling you what it says here, right? don't get mad at me. Whatever whatever the thing is, he he left them this huge blessing. And that's that's what God does. He's not a taker. He's a giver. God's going to take this from me. And God took that from me. No, that's not God. The devil came to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus came to, we would have life and life abundantly. Come on, enjoy the abundant life. Enjoy the grace of God. Enjoy the blessing of God. That's the God you serve today. Now, verse 7 He's going to tell them to fill the water pots with water. And I want to just look at this, excuse me, instruction that he gives here today. Some people use the excuse that doing the will of God It's too hard to understand and too hard to do. Oh, you know, the will of God, and who knows? And and who knows if the Bible is true, and if man write it, and church teaching, and paganism in the church, and all of this? Who knows what the will of God? It's too hard to understand, and it's too hard to do. And I just want to stand here today and tell you, absolutely not. It's not hard to do at all. In fact, it's really easy to do. So, in fact, it's so easy, it takes away all our excuses, Jesus boiled down all the commandments to love God and to love others as yourself. Is that hard to understand? No, it's easy to understand. So, you know, the excuse is, well, God's will is too hard. It's too vague. You know, we can't understand it. We can't do it. And that's just an excuse. It's absolutely not true. Listen to the simple, plain instruction that Jesus gives the servants here. Fill the water pots with water. Ooh. We should probably pray about that. He couldn't have just meant fill the water pots with water. There's probably a hidden meaning in there, right? Let's go to the Greek. It's got to be complicated. No. It's simple. And what God has told you to do is simple. And if we don't do it, it's just because we're stubborn and we don't want to. If I'm not loving God, if that's not my focus, if I'm not loving other people, if I'm doing my own thing and I'm selfish and it's all about me and my newsfeed and my this and my that and look at me and here's a selfie, no! I'm not getting any traction with that. But we live in a self-centered world and, oh, it's so easy to serve ourselves, isn't it? It's no sweat. We can do it for hours, not even get tired. But God gives a simple command. Jesus gives a simple command. Fill the water pots with water. Now, I like these guys. I like these servants here. These are my kind of guys. They, they didn't just fill the water pots, however. You know, you, you know when you give somebody a job and they just do it bad? Come on, just look straight ahead right now. Don't look at your family. Or your, you, give, you, give, you have to do everything yourself because nobody does anything right. So, you know, go fill the water pots. One's half filled, one's filled to the top, one's knocked over, they broke one. You know, I mean, those guys, right? Not these guys. They, it says they fill all of them to the brim. Now, there's, some, there's something in here for us. Number one, the first thing that you see about these guys is they're not just obedient, they're enthusiastically obedient. They're enthusiastic about their obedience. They didn't do it halfway. They didn't just schlep it. No, they filled them to the brim. That took a little work, amen, to do it that way. And listen, what God is looking for today is obedience. But what really thrills him and blesses his heart is when his children are enthusiastically obedient. Amen. You know, you could give somebody to do something and they do it, but they grumble the whole time or they do it halfway. You ever, yeah, yeah. Work with people like that all the time, right? They're exhausting, right? Their mother should have spanked them more. It's too late. But, you know, when God looks down and his children are doing it, not, oh, I have to do this, I have to do that. I never say, I have to preach. I, I have to do this. I, I say, I get to. I get to bring the word, amen. I get to do these things. I, I get to, you know, play in a worship team. Amen. I mean, it's a blessing. We've got to look at it that way. And when we do it, we don't, well, I work really hard and I'm diligent at work, but when I do anything for God, I just, you know, he, he takes what I give. You know, he gets the leftovers. Ouch. You know, and how many times do we do things like that? Buy a new boat, buy a new car, buy a new this, buy a new that, have the best of everything, two and three of everything, and the plate goes by and... God. Now, I'm not taking an offering after this. Don't get excited, but I'm just saying, how do we treat God? Do we do our best for him? Are we enthusiastic about our obedience? Oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. No, we get to. We get to be children of God. We get to work in the ministry. We get to share the gospel with others. We get to see the Holy Spirit move in our lives. Come on, this morning. So fill the water pots with water, and they do, and they do it enthusiastically, and they're obedient. And also I want to point something out about their obedience. They filled the pots to the brim. So what that did is it left room for nothing but a miracle. You see, if they would have filled it halfway, somebody could say, ah, well, they dumped that wine in it, or they put some bitter wine in it, and they mixed it with water. It was a parlor trick. No, when that thing's all the way full, you know, it's either water or it's wine. They left no room for anything but a miracle, And that's the way we got to live our lives, amen, that we're going to be all in for God. We're going to give 110%, amen. We're not going to keep some back for ourselves. We're not going to do our own thing, have our own agenda. We got to, it's all God or it's nothing. They fill them to the top. There's no room for anything but a miracle now. What are you going to do with that? And see, that's us. Don't do things halfway. Don't be half in the kingdom of God and half in the world, amen. No, that's never going to work out to the brim. And they left no room for anything but a miracle. Now, verse eight gives the second instruction here. And this is an interesting one. He says, fill the water pots with water. That's instruction number one. Verse eight, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So there again, the second instruction is much like the first one in that it's easy to understand. Now, notice he didn't give the second instruction till he gave the first instruction. This is important. Why? Because God tells us something to do, and we don't do it, or we want to see what else he'll say, or if you know, maybe if we wait long enough, he'll come up with another idea. Come on, it's quiet now. I do this with my ear all the time. I'm listening. God speaks, and we obey. Then God speaks again. God told him something to do. This, some of you, this is going to set you free if you get this. You know, God, when God speaks, the only response that is uh, the right response is obedience. And once we're obedient to the first thing he said, he, he will then tell us the second thing. We don't get a printout of the agenda. You know, we don't get the, 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 the trip with the waypoints and the routes and it's two minutes faster this way and you can take a deep. No, God gives us one instruction at a time. You say, What's, look at the children of Israel in the desert, what? He, he told them what to do, one instruction at a time, you know, and, and they had to be obedient. When they weren't obedient, think about manna. You know, if he said, just take enough for the day. If you took too much manna, it would rot and your house would stink, right? Uh-oh, <laughs> Rick, Rick's house smells again, wasn't obedient. Oh, Jesus, help us. So the reason I take the time to talk about the second instruction follows the first instruction is this, because a lot of people are sitting around saying, I'm waiting on God to do something. And, you know, what I found out in life, sometimes when we're waiting on God to do something, he's actually waiting on us to obey the last thing he said. Oh, second service, come on. Amen. I'm waiting on God. And God's up in heaven going. You see... When God has spoken to us and we haven't been obedient to the last thing he said, sometimes the heavens can be like brass. Evangelist Chris Reese lists five signs that God's waiting on us instead of us waiting on him. The first sign that God's waiting on us is this. Nothing is changing in your life. You can't put new wine into an old wineskin. There has to be change in us sometimes before God can pour out the new thing. Amen? Amen. There has to be change in us sometimes before God can answer our prayer. God, do this and do that and heal this and and change that. And God says, well, first I need to change you. And many times in life, you know, we're not getting the answer to our prayer, but yet we haven't embraced the change that the Holy Spirit has provoked in our lives. If nothing is changing in us and nothing is changing around us, it's a good indication God has told us to do something that we haven't yet done and everything is on pause. Number two, the second sign that God is waiting for us is this. We don't hear him anymore. I want to tell you something. Heaven doesn't go blackout. It doesn't have radio silence. It doesn't shut down for vacation. God is always doing something. The Holy Spirit is always moving. God is always speaking. If we're not hearing what's spoken from heaven, if we're not feeling the move of the Holy Spirit, it's not God, it's us. When we stop hearing him, that's a great indication that we need to get in his presence and get on our knees and find out what the Holy Spirit has to say to us because there's a good possibility that we have not been obedient to the last instruction he's given us, that we went off on a tangent and we went ahead of God and his presence isn't there at the moment. Now, number three, the, the third sign that God's waiting on us is this, you've become dependent on something besides him. This is important. First service, we had a word about repenting from idols and we we had a time of repentance. And, you know, it bears saying that, you know, many times when we don't do the will of God and the heavens are brass and nothing spiritually is happening around us, we we, we go satisfy ourselves with other things. People will satisfy themselves with a hobby or with, you know, uh, you know. TV or they want to use alcohol or drugs or something. And all of a sudden, that thing becomes our focus. It becomes our pleasure. It becomes our peace. I know that's heavy this morning, but we got to talk about it. Why? Because the enemy loves to do things to to us like that. God speaks. We're not obedient. Everything dries up around us. So now we want to drink or we want to do drugs or we want to engage in uh, pleasures that, you know, sexual things. There's all kinds of tricks and traps out there. But the thing that makes us susceptible to them and the thing that allows them to take a grip on our soul is the fact that, you know, we haven't been obedient to God and everything's dried up and we feel it in our spirits. Now we reach for a counterfeit and it ruins our souls. So if you're depending on anything else besides Jesus to give you peace and comfort and pleasure, there's a good possibility you have not been obedient to the last standing order of heaven. and You need to get in the secret place. We need to get in there and figure out what God's saying to us. Number five, uh, no, number four, um, did we talk about peace? I'm getting old and senile up here. So number four, the fourth indication, the fourth sign that, you know, we're waiting on God. He's waiting on us is that we don't have any peace Peace follows obedience. Peace follows faith. When we are obedient to what God has said, he gives us peace. Many times people ask me, i got to make a lot of decisions in my life. I don't know how to navigate this situation. I say this, listen for heaven. When God says something, do it. Take one step. And if you have peace, hear the next instruction. If you don't have peace, listen, the way God leads me, you know, the bit and the bridle, no, God leads me by my gut. I can feel in my gut when something's wrong. I can feel when somebody's wrong, when somebody asks me, and I know it, and I can't even take a step. There's been times where I try to take a step in a direction, and I almost could feel God's hand on my chest hold me. You remember when Paul said, we wanted to come to you, but the Holy Spirit restrained us. Remember that in his missionary journeys? Yeah, what was that? That was the hand of God, removing the peace of God so that the people of God would know the will of God. Come on. Sometimes we got to be led like that. You take one step, and if he checks you, man, you say, whoa, I, I'm going to stop dead here. Well, everybody else is moving. They can go off the cliff if they want, but I'm not moving till the cloud moves. I'm not moving till God speaks. If you don't have peace, don't make the decision. Jesus gave us peace as an inheritance. And when he removes it from us, it's an indication we're treading on the wrong paths. Number five, the fifth sign that God's waiting for us and we think we're waiting for him is that we are working too hard. Jesus said in Matthew 1130, my yoke is easy. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So many times we're overwhelmed. We we have too much to do. We can't get it, it done. We feel like we're failing on every front. You know, people keep putting demands on us. And, and what is that? It's the absence of peace, and then we begin to work, and we work, and we're busy, and we're trying to make everybody happy, and we're trying to, you know, we're trying to do all these things that God never asked us to do. Come on, is anybody feeling this today? That's an indication, look, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If it's not, something's wrong. Maybe we haven't been obedient to the instruction of heaven, but we've, we've bowed the knee to everything else around us. And our plate's too full. You know what the best thing to do when your plate's too full? Dump it out. Turn it over. Fast and pray. Oh, I know I'm not going to get any amens on that. It's getting late. Everybody's hungry. He just said the F word in church, fast. Yeah, sometimes, oh, I'm too busy. I'm too that. Sometimes we need to stop. You read the Psalms, it says, Selah. What is that? A pause. Some of us need a pause in our lives. To stop doing, we're too busy, we're not getting anywhere. We're the the rat on the wheel, spinning it around. So Jesus gives them a second instruction. It was easy for them to understand. The other part of this is he, he says, draw some out and take it to the headmaster of the feast. So their servants, they knew who the headmaster was. They knew how to draw the water out of the vessels. All easy, easy for them to understand, easy for them to do. Now the cool part of what happens here is when Jesus says, "Draw out the, you know, draw out the water that's turned into wine and bring it to the headmaster." They they actually do what he says. Isn't that a novel idea to listen to what you're told to do? Some of you need to laugh. It's good for your face. It takes your wrinkles away. Could you imagine just listening to what you were told to do? How many have parents when your kids do what you tell them to do? You're shocked. Because why our flesh doesn't want to be told to do so. Usually we do a a version of what we were told to do, and we do our and then it's like then we weren't told what to do. We did what we wanted. Oh, some of you this morning. But these guys are just humble enough and simple enough to actually do what they're told. You know what? I think that we need to adopt a lot of that in our own lives. You say, well, how did you get here? You know, how did you become? In the ministry, how did you get to be a pastor? I was just dumb enough to listen to what I was told to do. I went to Bible school without ever seeing the place. Somebody told me, You should go to this school. I applied, they accepted me, I showed up. I met him on the first day. So, I mean, there's good parts and bad parts to this story. Right? But all, all, all the way through, right? All the way through, we didn't have a master plan, we just had obedience. And that's the way you do things. That's the way you get from point A. to B. And then you turn around and go, how did I get here? One step at a time. One act of obedience at a time. These guys are told what to do. It's simple. They do it, and they just listen. Now, it doesn't say they smelled it to see. No, they didn't say that they took it out and see, is it red? Is it white? Is it Zinfandel? No. They just, no, they didn't test it. They didn't say, well, we didn't bring this to the head waiter and it's still water. He's going to hit us over the head with the, you know. No, they just did what Jesus said and they took it to him. They just obeyed. Now, I want us to understand reflexive obedience is the goal for us in life. Sometimes we're obedient grudgingly. Sometimes we're slow. Sometimes we want to put out a fleece. But if we can get to the place in our Christian walk of maturity where Jesus says to do something and we just do it, I'm telling you what, now we're on our way. Amen. Now the church can get something done. Amen. Instead of God says it, we say, well, I have to pray about it. Who are you going to pray to? All right, I'll move on. Verse 9 and 10 here, the, the miracle is continuing to... Unfold till it gets to this place when the head waiter tested the water, which had become wine, and he did not know where it came from. But the servants who drew the water knew. Remember, servants get to see miracles. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. But when the people have drunk freely and he serves the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And so it went from you were going to be embarrassed. You were going to run out. You know, the party was over. People were going to talk. It was going to be a sad moment at a wedding. To now the head waiter is like, man, you, you're an incredible guy. Everybody does it this way, but you did it the opposite way. You know, Now, the, the groom was probably going like, oh. remember, he, he doesn't, I don't know what he knew, but he's like, oh, thanks. And what happened here is that God was showing us the way that he does things. God doesn't do things the way man does things. God doesn't do things the way we do things. <clears throat> he does the exact opposite. Look what happened here. God doesn't do the bait and switch, you know, like ah, oh, you know, I'll give you the good stuff, then the bad stuff, and he, he's not playing games with us. God doesn't bring, you know, us from good to worse. He brings us from good to bad to, to he from good to better to best. And I want to tell you something. What I want you to know about this point is that this is a description of the kingdom of God. It wasn't about the groom. It wasn't about the party. It wasn't even about the miracle. This is the way God does things. He saves the best for last. God saves the best for last. Now... I want to encourage you this morning, if your life is hard now, if it feels like it's all uphill now, if you've got more than you can handle now and you're overwhelmed, listen to me, this is not the end. And it's you, know, you say, well, it might get worse. Yeah, but at the end, it's going to get better because God always saves the best for last. Amen. <laughs> Someday you and I are going to leave this old body behind and we're going to get free and we're going to go to be with the Lord forever in eternity. Now, if we can't get excited about that, we're going to have an altar call at the end. You can get saved again, amen, because you need it. If you're not excited about heaven, if you're not excited about Jesus and the fact that he's coming back to get his church, then your eyes are on the wrong stuff, amen. When I say Jesus is coming back to get his church, you should get silly, crazy happy, amen. I say Jesus is coming back to get his church, and he's coming to take us home with him, amen. Amen. Woo. You know, when you sit there like a mushroom on a log, when I say that, there's people in this room that aren't saved, and they don't think you believe what I'm preaching. That's why we got to say something in church, amen. You, you know, we have because it's a declaration of our faith. Yeah, I believe that he's coming back to get his church. I believe I'm going to be in heaven for eternity with him, Amen. I believe that this morning, and it's my hope. It's the blessed hope that we're going to be with him. So all you mushrooms, get delivered. Sometimes just us getting excited about what awaits us, is, it just blesses the heart of the Lord because he knows we can't see it, we can't feel it, we can't go on the Internet and check it out. Oh, let's go research heaven. Looks like they have nice hotels. No, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a faith thing. It's a hope thing. Amen. But you know what? The more you just choose to believe the word and rejoice, the more the Holy Spirit just confirms that what awaits us. Amen. Uh, eye has not seen or ear heard what, what God has prepared. Oh, it's going to be so awesome. So God saves the best for last, and he doesn't do things the way man does it. And, and he's a blessing God, and he's a good God, and he's a generous God. And that's what we have to look forward to. Now, verse 11 closes... The whole miracle down. It says, This is the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Listen, and his disciples believed in him. And I don't know if I mentioned this in first or second service, but you know, we talked about last week Jesus plus 12. It could have been at that time he only had five disciples um, because he was still calling some of them in the time frame. So whether it was whatever it was. You know, those disciples were just getting to know Jesus. They were just getting to see him move in kingdom power. And verse 11 here tells us that what they had seen him do with the water into wine, it produced belief in them. Now, this is the whole point of this miracle. It's not about saving a wedding. It's not about giving wine to people who already had wine. It's not about making Mary happy because Jesus was put. No, it was about Jesus revealing his glory in a way that produced belief in his disciples. I want to tell you something today. God still does miracles. God still moves by his Holy Spirit. God still saves the lost. God still heals the sick. God still saves sinners. Come on. He all does that. You say, well, why does he do that? To produce belief in us and in the lost. That's what it's all about. Miracles are not entertainment for the church. And that's sometimes why in the West we don't have a lot of them, because people want to package them up and sell them and and put them on TV and build a ministry for themselves. Listen to me. That's not what miracles are for. Miracles are to produce belief, to produce faith in God's people and in the lost so that they can be saved. And that's exactly what this miracle accomplishes in the end. I don't know if the the groom or the bride ever knew what happened. I don't know if the head waiter ever got told the story. I I don't know. I know the servants knew, so I want to be a servant because I want to be in the thick of the kingdom of God. I want to see miracles, amen? Amen but because it produces belief, it galvanizes our faith. Look, all of us have seen God do things in our life that no one can ever tell us that there is no God, that God doesn't answer prayer, that God doesn't heal. Come on, brother. Come on, brother. Amen. Amen. Nobody can tell us because of what he's done. So believe God for miracles. And- And be a servant and be in the thick of the signs and wonders and let it galvanize your faith and give you a boldness to share the light with others. Now, let's bow our heads this morning here. I want to give you an opportunity if you're here today and you're saying, I'm hearing all of what you're saying. I I know that the reason we have the scripture and when Jesus did miracles and God still does miracles is because he wants us to come to him in faith. I want to give you an opportunity to come to Jesus Christ this morning. You say, why why would I have to do that? The Bible says if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, we would be saved. He made it very simple. We're all sinners. Maybe you're here this morning. You're the first time in the church. You don't even know who I am. I'm Pastor Rick, and I'm a sinner, and I'm saved by the grace of God. I'm saved by the cross of Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do I get that relationship with Christ? How do I get forgiven of my sin? We simply ask him, and we have faith in him, and we receive him as a savior. See, the minute we realize we're sinners, we know we need a savior. And there's Jesus with his arms wide open saying, come to me. I died for you. He literally died in our place. He was the only redeemer that was able to crucify the power of sin and break its dominion over man. This morning, if you want a relationship with Jesus Christ, you want to be forgiven, you want a clean slate and a fresh start, a new beginning, you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit so you can live a different life, and you want to be assured that heaven will be your home, not because of your works or your good deeds, but because you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. If you want that this morning, I want you to slip up your hand. How many people would say, I want to receive Jesus this morning, I want a clean slate and a fresh start? God bless you. Hands going up. Ushers, if you've seen any hands, there's a lot of light on me up here. Just get, just get a packet in anyone's hand. Uh, let's pray a prayer together. Say, Lord Jesus, I receive you this morning as my Savior and as my Lord. I confess that I'm a sinner and I repent of my sin. I ask you to fill me with the Holy Spirit. Give me the power to live a different life. From this moment forward, I belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Give him praise.